Well, it's going to be a fun one today, boys and girls. We are going to go back in time 100 years ago to 1919 because tomorrow is a very special event. Tomorrow marks the 100th anniversary of the Green Bay Packers' first ever road trip. And why is that significant other than our proximity to Green Bay? The fact that we have a lot of Packer fans in our listening area? Because that road trip came up here to Marquette County. Ishpeming was the destination. The Packers took on the Ishpeming Nagani Twin City 11 in their first ever road contest 100 years ago tomorrow. I got a few guests who are going to join me. We'll talk about it. Dwight Brady, professor of communications at Northern Michigan University, has done a lot of research on the subject. He'll join the show here shortly. I'm going to talk with Cliff Crystal. Green Bay Packers team historian. He'll be on here in about 30 minutes. Both those guys are going to give us some really good perspective. And then, of course, Ryan Stieg, per usual, will be on here on Friday afternoon to end the day. By the way, if you missed our coaches show right before we came on, you missed any part of it, not only is it on demand, it's going to be played again once we sign off, getting you set for Friday night football here on ESPN-UP. But I tell you what, before we get into the Packers and the Ishpeming Nagani Twin City 11, we talk about what happened 100 years ago this weekend. We got some present-day sports to catch you up on, particularly baseball and football. Because last night, the Houston Astros essentially won the ALCS. Now the Yankees have got to win three in a row. they got to go through Verlander tonight. Garrett Cole, if they can get by him, it might end tonight. Verlander or James Paxton, give me that all day. The Astros won 8-3 last night, and they took a 3-1 series lead in the ALCS. They are one game away from going back to the World Series for the second time in three years. So why are the Yankees on the brink of elimination? Well, the biggest stat that jumps out at me, the Yankees are hitless and their last 14 at-bats with runners in scoring position. That streak dates back to Game 2, and that matches the longest such streak of the season for the Yankee offense. They did that August 28th until September 1st, an 0-for-14 stretch with runners in scoring position. Yesterday I was saying, really all week I've been saying, in the playoffs, good pitching beats good hitting. And that's what's happening this series. That's why even if the Yankees were able to get by Houston... I still wouldn't pick them to beat Washington because good pitching will give you a chance to win every single night. Offense, for whatever reason, gets spotty, especially in the biggest moments. Yankees on the brink of being eliminated. It looks like we are going to have a Houston-Washington World Series. Again, pitching wins your games. You might win the regular season. You might get a few you know, records broken, shattered, what have you, with your offense. Twins, Yankees, Dodgers, they were all like that. But good pitching... That is what's going to make the difference for you. That is what will win you titles. On the football field last night, it was a 30-6 win for Kansas City over Denver to start Week 7 of the NFL season, but at what cost? Because future Hall of Famer Pat Mahomes, Pat Mahal of Fame, went down with a dislocated kneecap in the second quarter. Pat Mahomes, whose status going forward is unclear, down for the count suffering his first major injury of his career. And I was just devastated, as I'm sure many of you were. No one wants to see a player like that go down with an injury, especially not a guy as fun as Pat Mahomes. I'm not even a Chiefs fan. I would give both my kneecaps to Pat Mahomes if I could. That injury is sending ripples all around the football world, maybe even beyond that. 
I tell you what, we're not moping, we're not sobbing today all throughout sports radio. We're acting accordingly. Because when a player like that goes down, it moves you. It moves you. It moved Mike Golick Sr. If you listened to Golick and Wingo this morning, it was in their final segment right before they signed off. Golick Sr. gave us maybe the best audio I've ever heard. Now, I know people say that a lot. They use that too liberally. They say, this is the greatest thing ever. When I say this, that Mike Golick Sr. gave us this audio, which I'm going to play for you here in a moment, when I say that it is the greatest thing I've ever heard, I'm not exaggerating. I'm not kidding. Tim McGraw, one of his classic hits, if you're into country music, you know this song, Don't Take the Girl. That's a good song. Love that song. Well, Golick Sr. did a remix. I think there is a popular remix of that song going around right now. Golick Sr. gave his take on it, and he turned Don't Take the Girl into Don't Take Mahomes. My son looked at the cheese pile, he said, we can't leave hat behind. Son, I know you love Pat Mahomes, but the QB sneak was designed. And Mikey said, take Roethlisberger, take Mitch Trubisky, take my friend Nick Foles. Take anybody on all you want as long as Pat don't go. Take any QB in the world. Daddy, please. Don't take my homes. Was I lying or was that the greatest thing that you have ever heard? Mike Golick Sr. Don't take the girl remix. Don't take... Patrick Mahomes. I really want to get into the Chiefs' future and what they're going to do now. Is Matt Moore the answer going forward, or are they going to do something else? Because I think there's a strong possibility they might, but I honestly want to play it all over again. Just one more time. One more time. My son looked at the Chiefs' pile. He said, we can't leave Pat behind. Son, I know you love Pat Mahomes, but the QB sneak was designed. And Mikey said, take Roethlisberger, take Mitch Trubisky, take my friend Nick Foles. Take anybody on all you want, as long as Pat don't go, take any QB in the world. Daddy, please don't take my homes. Thank you, Mike Golick Sr. Thank you for giving us that content. Thank you for giving the world that song. I tell you what, let's get into the Chiefs' future and where they go from here. And I'm going to say straight up, I don't believe that they are going to go out and get another quarterback. I think they're going to roll with Matt Moore. He's coached by Andy Reid, who's made Kevin Cobb look like a pro bowler before. That's right, Kevin Cobb. He had his best year with Kansas City. I think they're going to stick with Matt Moore, which can be the right move. But I think there's another move that needs to be made if that's the decision that they go with. And that could very well be adding a running back. Hear me out on this. The Chiefs have a mixed bag in their backfield. Shady's look good at times. LeSean McCoy? He's had a few good games. Damian Williams has been all right. 
but largely the running game has been non-existent, which the Chiefs were fine with because they knew Pat Mahomes would have another MVP caliber season. Until you take Pat Mahomes out of the equation. I don't think the Chiefs should go out and get a quarterback. I think they should be looking at running backs. I really do. Because Matt Moore is not Patrick Mahomes. He is not going to put up the numbers that Mahomes does. You're not going to have the air raid offense with Matt Moore that you did with Pat Mahomes. Now that's obvious. But Moore is still serviceable. That being said, Moore is not going to dazzle like Mahomes was. And that's what made the Chiefs special. Because they didn't have much of a rushing attack. At least not a consistent one. What if you got a consistent one here in the coming weeks before we get to the trade deadline? I know this is interdivisional, and those are very, very rare. But how's Melvin Gordon doing? Hear me out on this. The Chargers know he's not coming back next year. Might as well get what you can for him. If the Chiefs get Melvin Gordon and they have a solid rushing attack, a reliable rushing attack, Shady's good when he's good. When he's off, he's really off. And when he's off, the entire rushing game is off. Matt Moore needs a safety net if he's going to be the Chiefs quarterback and continue to keep them atop the AFC West. Matt Moore needs a safety net, and that safety net comes in the form of a reliable rushing attack. Because Matt Moore is not going to wreak terror in the skies like Pat Mahomes did. He's not going to get Tariq Hill, Sammy Watkins, Travis Kelsey and company involved like Pat Mahomes did. So he's going to need to get the rushing attack going better than Pat Mahomes did. And you're not going to do that with Shady. You're not going to be guaranteed that with Shady. So what about putting a package together to go out and get Melvin Gordon? It's going to take a lot. Or will it? Because the Chargers are going to be willing to hear any offer they can get from him. Because if they let him ride this entire season, you know he's just going to walk and get nothing for him. You've got a team like the Chiefs that are in win-now mode. They're still thinking Super Bowl, especially if they can get uh, Pat Mahomes back and effective. They're still thinking Super Bowl. And if they get Melvin Gordon, that gives them a chance to continue to fight for a first-round bye. Get one of those top two seeds in the AFC, which cannot be understated. Because you know New England is getting one of them. So who gets the other? Going after Melvin Gordon could very well be the difference for Kansas City this year. And if I'm KC, that's the move I'm making. Again, it's interdivisional, so I don't know how likely it is. Those are very, very rare. But the Chargers don't have as much leverage as it might appear. The Chiefs would like a consistent running back. The Chargers are just looking to get rid of Melvin Gordon, especially if they are not going to win this season. They're off to a 2-4 and four start. Melvin Gordon has been frustrated, demanding more touches this weekend. They know he's not coming back next year. Might as well see what you can get from him, because he is a good running back. You can get a lot back for him. You can build your team for the future. He's your bargaining chip. The Chiefs don't need to be looking at the quarterback market. They need to be looking at the running back market. Because Pat Mahomes is out for at least three games, maybe more. And when he comes back, who knows how effective he'll be. He might need a reliable rushing attack to take some of the pressure off him if and when he does come back. But you look at their next three games, without Pat Mahomes, they're going to be starting Matt Moore in these situations. Green Bay, Minnesota, Tennessee. I think they'll lose those first two. Tennessee is such a mess themselves right now, especially at the quarterback position. KC might win that. But even if they do, 
That puts Kansas City at 6-4. and four. Maybe you get Mahomes back for your 11th game, for the final six games of the year, coming off a dislocated knee and hobbled by an ankle injury. That affects him most when he's dropping back to pass. That's why Andy Reid called the QB sneak. He's come under a lot of criticism for that. I'll trust him when they say it hurts him more to drop back and pass. It hurts Pat Mahomes more to drop back and pass than it does to QB sneak. I'll trust him when they say that. Hey, let's take a look at our pick standings before we get our first guest in here to talk about the Packers' 100th anniversary of their first road game where they came up here to Ishpeming. I tell you what, we were all unanimous on Kansas City last night. We all picked Kansas City to win. That gives me 20 wins. It gives Ryan Stieg 19. He's going to join the show here later on. Jake Durant, 18. Tyree Smith, 17. And John Michael Hofling with 15. Other games this weekend, here are my picks. I've got Indiana, Tennessee, Dallas, New England. For the remaining four games we're picking this weekend, Ryan has Indianapolis, the Chargers, Philadelphia, and New England. Jake has Houston, the Chargers, Dallas, and the New York Jets. J-E-T-S. Jake believes that they're going to keep the train going. Tyree has Houston, the Chargers. He doesn't know yet on Philadelphia, Dallas, which he's allowed to do. He can make a pick up till kickoff and then New England. And Michael has Indianapolis, the Chargers, Philadelphia, New England. Man, I just realized I'm the only one who picked Tennessee. I'm the only one who picked Tennessee. How about that? (laughs) It's very rare that I'm the hot take guy, that I'm out there on my own limb. I'm the only one that picked Tennessee to beat the Chargers, although maybe not as egregious as Jake picking the Jets over the Patriots. Maybe he burns us all. Maybe he proves us all wrong. I don't know. That's the beauty of football. That's why we love it. I tell you what, my first guest is ready. When we come back, let's go back 100 years ago and take a look back at the Packers matchup against Ishpeming Nagani, the Twin City 11, 100 years ago tomorrow. But... It's coming to you next on ESPN-UP. Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen. Weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN-UP and on the ESPN-UP app. Welcome back to The Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. Tanner Hoops with you. Glad to have you along. Guest in studio with us, Dwight Brady, professor of communications at Northern Michigan University. Here to talk about the 100th anniversary of the Packers' first road game they came up to take on Ishpeming. Dwight, appreciate you being here. I'm glad to have you because you're kind of an expert on the subject. You've been doing a lot of research on this lately. Got something special coming out here in the next few days. Well, it's, it's actually a, a, kind of a work in progress. I, I think being an expert at this point is, is premature. I, <laughs> I, I'm learning all I can about the, the early history of, of the uh, UP teams that played the Green Bay Packers. Uh, and I, I was just down in Green Bay the other day before the Lions game and talked to a number of Packer fans and Lions fans about this, and no one is aware of this history, really. I mean, these are people that are dressed full tilt in Packer garb, and it's still, you know, it's 100 years in the rearview mirror, and uh, I think it's something worth bringing back uh, around so people understand the the role that the UP teams and UP players uh, played with the the emergence of the Green Bay Packers. Well, let's talk about football in the UP a century ago. We had the Northern Michigan League. Ishpeming Nagani ran the table for a long time there. They won the title five straight years. Tell me about the formation of that team. Well, you know, again, I haven't had a chance to research fully the the, uh, background of, of 
all the league's teams, uh, but there were a number of teams back at, at that time with Ishmael and Nagani being part of it. Iron Mountain had a team. Gogebic County had some very good ball clubs at that time. And, of course, we were seeing a lot of players from, from Menominee as, as well. So it, it, was, it was a very active league. And, and uh, you look at, uh, again, the Packers' early schedule there in 1919. No one had been able to keep the Packers under 50 points. All right, until they played this team from Stambo, Michigan. Right, so again, the UP teams they they came up, uh, they didn't win, but they 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 came up pretty tough against the Packers uh, in in that in that year, and uh, there's some great stories about the Stambo team um, in the second year where they played actually Stambo twice. And uh, the first time was just a mud bath game that they lost three to nothing when Curly Lambeau kicked uh, a, a drop kick three nothing to, to beat them. And then they played the first Thanksgiving Day game uh, on November 25th of 1920. And so there's a lot of firsts involved. The first team the Packers ever played was from Menominee, right? First road trip, as as you mentioned, for the Packers was right up the road here in in Ishpeming. And and so a lot of rich history with the teams from that league and that era because it was very well developed you know before the Packers came along the teams from the UP as you know had been playing each other uh, and, and of course teams from Minnesota and Wisconsin so the Packers in some respects were a little bit late in coming to the party but of course the teams back in those days playing the Packers in the 1919 and 1920 whatever you know they could have never imagined that there would be this incredibly successful franchise coming out of Green Bay. Well, Dwight, a lot of these teams in the UP 100 years ago, Ishpeming, Nagani, Menominee, Iron Mountain, they were amateur. They were semi-pro. They had full-time jobs outside of football. What were some of the full-time professions for these guys? Well, again, you're, you're looking at mining towns, mill towns. You know, it was basically just blue-collar guys who had played in high school and wanted a little bit more. You know, they, they weren't quite ready to... to, to to give up the glory days, so to speak, and so that's where a lot of this comes from. And, and it was, you know, football was still is a very rough game, and so there was you know, some risk of injury. But for the guys in the semi-pro leagues, they were able to, you know, the better players were able to basically get about two weeks worth of wages in one week, right? So that that was a pretty good gig for them as long as you could stay healthy because you know there's no workman's comp at that point. <laughs> you don't you don't want to get hurt and then not being able be able to go back to your your day job. And a lot of folks uh did have uh you know full full slate. Uh there's one tragic story of of Rigney Dwyer who was one of the original Packers uh who right before the Thanksgiving Thanksgiving Day game against Stambo, he was he was with the Packers at the time. He had a very bad accident on the railroad, and it, you know, obviously ended his his football career. But they spared his life. So there's there's all kinds of you know history there with you know the guys working pretty pretty tough jobs, and yet going out on the weekends and bashing heads and, and making a little extra money, and 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 again making history in in, in at the same time. Salary-wise, what were we looking at around 1919, 1920 for semi-pro teams? Well, again, if you're, if you're kind of put it in context of what people were earning at the time, it was about about $4 a week was, was a, a, a living wage at, at the time. So if, if they could go out and, and make, you know, four or five dollars or maybe even twenty dollars some of the better players again they they were in they were in pretty good shape uh you know financially so that was that was good extra money certainly not what we're seeing today where players are making you know a, a million or two per game for some of the better players 
How about equipment-wise? What were you looking at back in the day? It was, you know, the leather helmet, what have you. But uniform-wise, what were you looking at back then? Pretty much whatever they could cobble together. I mean, they, the Packers uh, had had a limited amount of money during their, their first few years. Uh, but if you go back... Um, to some of the teams over in Bessemer and uh, uh, Ironwood, they they both had striped stripes on their arms. That seemed to be the the thing. Long sleeve shirts with stripes, and uh, you know they they looked pretty darn uniform. Where again, some of the early Packer pictures, some of them were in the same uniform, some of them not. It, it so and of course we all know the the story about how the Acme Packers first started out as the you know the Indian Packing Company. They they were bought out, and but the Acme uh, Company only had the Packers. I think just for a very short period of time, and then it changed hands again. But people seem to just remember the the, the name Acme a little easier than some of the other names. What, what about some of the home fields, the arenas, what have you? You know, there wasn't. Anything too large, too fancy like we see now, but what was some of the home venues back in the day? Well, the Packers then, of course, they played at Hagemeister Park. Then that was uh, basically just a roped-off sandlot when, when the Packers first started, and, and that's where the UP teams you know, primarily would would uh, do battle with the Packers. They, they would travel down there, but again, as we mentioned earlier, the Packers sometimes would go on the road and come up come up here. Uh, and then, of course, uh, as as the team grew, they, they, they put, put up a, a wooden fence around Hagemeister Meister Park, so they could charge admissions because that was the only way you know they could. There, there was no television at the time, so they couldn't charge any real rights for for broadcast or anything like that. So the only way they could make money for the team was from from gate receipts. So uh, they started building out a little more in terms of uh, uh, bleacher areas, and, and then eventually moved to what is now the, the city city park. And then of course that was. Uh, uh, transferred then back over to what is now Lambeau Field as far as a, a venue for the, for the Packers. But in the early years, it was all about Hagemeister Park. I had the, the privilege of interviewing uh, the team historian Cliff Crystal at uh, a bar in Green Bay the other day called Hagemeister Park. It's just adjacent to where the Packers used to play, you know, 100 years ago. Dwight, how'd they go about travel for road games? Was it mainly by train? Was that only for trips outside the UP? How'd they go about going on the road? Well, within the UP, they could certainly, you know, they could do some travel by either or, I guess, train or or car. Because, again, automobiles were emerging as, as obviously a little more popular than they were when they first were introduced. But primarily the longer trips uh, were, were by train. And uh, uh, the UP fans, uh, they, they sometimes would, would even travel. But the, for the, even the Green Bay fans would, would come up here uh, in, in uh, I remember, the Ishpeming game reading about that how you know the fans were, were bringing banners through through the town and and uh not maybe taunting but that there was there was some betting going on with with some of these games with especially with some of the up teams a, a lot of it there with with the stambo game as far as what the research would indicate do you have any idea where the packers could have stayed when they came up here to play ishpeming could that hotel still be around i i, I think there's probably records of that i haven't gotten that deeply into it again at, th- at this point i mean i started working on this about a month ago so I, I'm going to be. I feel like I'm, I'm creating my own jigsaw puzzle here, and, and I'm going to shake it all up and just throw it down on the editing floor and start putting it all together. So it's still in the fairly early stages. I've you know, dozens of people yet I want to interview, and then I'll start editing probably around the first week of December, with hopefully a launch date here to, to present this uh, to the public around the first uh, part of January. You know, we'll see. Maybe the Packers, if they're still in the playoffs at that point, they'll be. I'm sure there'll be interest anyway. But that would certainly add to it. What else have you found throughout your research that you want to share? 
Well, I think, again, just the fact that the, the original Packers, if you, if you look at the, that roster, that uh, you have uh, six players who have UP connections. And so that's really the, the, the thesis of this whole uh, documentary. It's called Linked to Legends, the Upper Peninsula teams that played the Green Bay Packers. And so we're going to look at each one of those communities, you know, Menominee, Iron Mountain, uh, you know, the Stambo, Crystal Falls area, Gogibbet County with uh, Ironwood and Bessemer, and then, of course, Ishpeming and Nagani. Just there's so much there that we can we can talk about. And then also, as someone who played his football here in the UP, I got a chance to play here many, many years ago. And, you know, I understand the, the type of football that's played here. Smaller guys that just play way above their, their size. Uh, a good example of, of that is uh, a guy from, uh, from Menominee many years ago, Wally Neiman, and he was a 150-pound lineman. 150-pound lineman, all right, from Menominee. He went on to play four years for Coach Yost at the University of Michigan and then came back to Menominee and then played against the Packers and then signed a contract to play for the Packers. And then after his playing days were over, went on to be an inventor and is has some patents that relate to the rotary mower. And just so really... Uh, interesting characters that emerge all along and and I'll link it back to you know this kind of gritty toughness of UP football uh, and I'm going to interview Ken Hofer uh, this weekend uh, for Menominee. And, of course, Ken had those great teams in, in the early 2000s or mid-2000s uh, that won some state championships. And he told me last night, he said it was 162 pounds when, I, when he played at the University of Wisconsin. He was the smallest player on the team. So he gets it. He understands how these players can play way above their, their skill level, their size and, and that's to me, that's what UP football is all about. Well, Dwight, you look at the style of football that was played back in the day. It was a lot of ground and pound. It was really physical. The air raid wasn't a thing back then, correct? Right. It, it, it was, again, a derivative of rugby. The ball was almost round at the time when, when they first started playing back in the late 1800s. And then, of course, it, it emerges uh, you know, into something that looks a little bit more like our modern-day football. And one thing that uh, Brent Hensel, who was the curator of the Packer Hall of Fame, I was down there talking with him this, this past weekend, and uh, uh, he told me that when the game was uh, emerging like that, it, a forward pass, if it was dropped, it was a live ball. Mm. <laughs> so that would make it a lot of fun today, wouldn't it? Uh, so... Uh, Really interesting development of the game, and, and uh, in one of the games, I know against the UP teams, somebody said to Curly Lambeau, throw a forward. Well, that would have meant you know, a forward pass, and it was, it was a big deal. For the most part, you're right. It was just keep it on the ground and try to you know, use misdirection and deception rather than put the ball in the air. Well, Dwight, from my own research, it surprised me how prevalent the kicking game was back in the day. I know Green Bay had a lot of former college stars. They probably had a few guys who could kick it, but it surprised me to see how many small-town teams here in the UP had guys who could kick the football. You know, I haven't looked that specifically into the kicking game. Uh, there there were a couple of guys who went on to play in the pros as, as kickers. Um, and I know the big thing that back then, the difference is the, the prevalence of the drop kick. And I remember my dad taking me out and trying to teach me how to drop kick, you know, he had played in an era when that was still popular, and I never did get the hang of it. It's, it's a tricky thing, and it, to be able to do it on the run, nonetheless, and perhaps that might have had something to do with the fact that the ball was a little more rounded. It might have a little truer bounce, and today doing a drop kick with, with the shape of the football we have, it, it would be 
uh, it would take a lot of practice. <laughs> so, Dwight, tell me about the decline of football in the UP. You see small market franchises like Green Bay, and really they're the only one that survived from that era. But tell me about the decline of football in the UP. I think you used a, a great word there, survival. And, and that's really what it was all about with, with these leagues. Uh, and, and the Packers, they struggled for survival just like everybody else, which is one of the reasons why they, they like to play teams in the UP because there was usually good attendance and it was good competition. And uh, so I think one of, the, one of the reasons the Packers survived and maybe the other teams didn't is that they, they knew how to sell the games. If, even though if they knew they were going to blow this team out 80 to nothing, they would still sell it as a clash of the titans and to get people in the door and get, get people out there. So, and that goes back to, to the days of George Calhoun, who was uh, um, with the Press Gazette in Green Bay, and, and, uh, and Curly Lambeau, as, as he's been described by, by a number of people in, in Green Bay, as, as someone who would stretch the truth from time <laughs> to time, or maybe all the time. <laughs> Dwight Brady is a professor of communications at Northern Michigan University here to help us understand a little bit better the football landscape of the UP around 1920. Dwight, that was fascinating. Great stuff. Appreciate you being here. We'll talk again soon. Oh, sure. No problem. My pleasure. Let's take a time out. More after this on ESPN UP. Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen. Weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN UP and on the ESPN UP app. Welcome back to the Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. Tanner Hoops with you. Glad to have you along. Special guest joins us on the ESPN-UP phone line, Cliff Crystal, the Green Bay Packers team historian. He's here to give us some perspective on a very special anniversary coming up this weekend. Saturday marks the 100th anniversary of the Ishpeming Nagani game against the Green Bay Packers. It marks the Packers' first road game in team history. Cliff, really glad to have you on. Give us a little idea. Give us a little understanding first and foremost about how a football team formed in Green Bay and grew into what we know now. Well, we were, their birth date's August 11th of 1919. Um, and uh, that first team played, uh, was basically an alumni team, alumni all-star team of Green Bay East and Green Bay West high schools. Um, there had been town football in Green Bay like all other cities, but prior to that, but uh, what really fueled the passions here were the, was the East-West game. And so most of the players had played with or against Curley in that game. And they put together a team in the fall of um, 1919 um, and crushed just about every opponent they played. Um, I call it a year of snake oil football because they sold other all the teams they beat and how good they were, uh, when a lot of them were just fly-by-night teams that were picked up and organized in a couple of days, maybe played one game the entire season and never to be heard from again. But they played three tough teams that year. One was Ishpeming, Ishpeming Nagani, really. Uh, the other was Stambaugh from the UP, and then the one game they lost was Beloit. So tell me about how it came to be that the Packers hit the road. Was it simply to find better competition? That's why they decided to head up to the UP? Um, no. They were desperate for a game. That was organized in the spur of the moment. Um, I believe it was they had a game scheduled against Fond du Lac, and Fond du Lac backed out. And so at the last minute, they, they wanted to play all their games at home at Hagemai 
place to park, and that didn't work out. So at the last minute, they just um, they organized and uh, went up to took a train up to Ishpeming, played really their first road game in the history of the Green Bay Packers, um, and we're in for a game. Well, Cliff, let's talk about the Packer personnel. A lot of those guys, you said they grew up around Green Bay. Curley started using some of his connections, bringing in former college stars. Tell me about how the Packers went in the early days, filling that roster out. Well, like I said, it was an East-West game. Curley had played a year of college football. Um, he may have been, I don't think if there was anybody else, there were a couple guys that played college football after they played. Uh, that season with the Packers. Um, but um, they were uh, just mostly local guys. Actually, there were several of them that had UP ties. I think close to about a half dozen of them born in the UP. Uh, their families moved to Green Bay when they were young, and they uh, ended up playing at um, East or West High School. But they were UP natives. So for 1919, was this a full-time position? Did they have other jobs on the outside? What was the salary like for a football player back yeah. then? No, this was just a semi-pro team, no different than the Ishpeming Nagani team. Um, they all had jobs, or most likely had jobs. Uh, they were all living in Green Bay, most of them living near... Uh, I think most of the most of the players who uh, were born in the UP were uh, part of railroad families. So their dads, their, their families moved. Their fathers got jobs on the railroad. So most of them played on the west side. Uh, that's where most of the railroad workers lived in Green Bay at the time. Um, the east siders, some of them had worked at the packing plant, but um, most of the most of the players who had were born in the UP, um, lived in West Green Bay, and were, were stars for some powerhouse football teams at Green Bay West High School. Cliff, what was the Packer vision when they first started putting this team together? Did they envision that they could turn into a full-time pro team, or what was the goal when Curley put the squad together? Try to play, try to complete a schedule for that season. Um, they didn't even have a ballpark. They played in an open field at Hagemeister Park. Um, there had been a baseball park there that was used by a minor league team Green Bay had through 1914, but that had been um, raised in 1918, and so Green Bay was out without a ballpark, much to the chagrin of a lot of sports fans here. Um, so they were no. No different a situation than Ishpeming-Nagani. Well, Cliff, of all the small market teams in that era, the Packers really are the only one that's still around. But was Green Bay considered a small market by 1919 standards? Well, they played two years of that of independent ball. Um, not really professionals. They were semi-pros, which I'm assuming Ishpeming and Nagani team was as well. Um, and then in 1921, they joined what was then called the American Professional Football Association. That first year, there were 21 teams in the league, and Green Bay was the second smallest. The only smallest team was, the only smaller town was uh, Tonawanda, New York, which is near Buffalo. Tonawanda played one game and folded. 
the Packers have now played more than a thousand. So, yes, they were the they were the small. They have been the smallest team in the what is now the NFL for most of their history. So, Cliff, at what point did Curley and the Packers start to realize that they were built to last, that they could be a market that could last throughout history? Well, I think it was pretty ambitious of them to get involved in the in the APFA. Um, in 1920, they uh, they built a ballpark, seated only about 1,500. They built it in a week, which you could do back then. Um, but the 20 season wasn't in much different than the 1919 season. Just played state teams. Uh, played standball twice that year, I believe. Uh, and then the next year when they got into the league, um, you know, they didn't even know if they'd survive then. They didn't even know if they'd be able to schedule games. They just, uh, you know, the league, the APFA accepted their uh, application. They were in, joined the league, but uh, J. Emmett Clare, who represented the uh, Packer, Green Bay at that meeting, he was the younger brother of the guy who was an officer with Acme Packing. Um, he didn't really know if any teams would be willing to play the Packers. So even after they joined the league, their their future was somewhat in doubt. And they, I, I tell people they were perpetually on their deathbed for their first 30 years, certainly through the 1940s till the 1950s Stocksdale, and really until they build, uh, built what is now Lambeau Field, what was first called Green Bay City Stadium. Well, Cliff, I'm looking at some of the scores from the Packers' 1919 season: 61 nothing, 87 nothing, 76 to six. Eventually, they found Ishpeming Nagani. They were the five-time Northern Michigan champions. hadn't lost a game in their home field in five years. How did that matchup come about? How did they decide that they were going to play this squad? And why didn't they play that game in Green Bay? Well, I, you know, I think the UP was a hotbed of football. And they probably, first of all, they were desperate, as I said. They needed to find a game on short notice. Um, and so some of the UP teams had been probably more established. Actually, um, I know people say, claim that about Ishwaming, but Ishwaming had not had a team since 1916 because of the war. But in 1916, they had a pretty formidable team, and then they regrouped in 1919. Um, I've been to Ishwaming, I've been to the Northern Michigan Archives, I've gone through microfilm day by day of the UP papers during that 1919 season, and if anybody's looking to do a, some fascinating reading, go to your library up there, um, and I think Northern Michigan probably has it too, and look at the Ishwaming Iron Ore newspaper uh, for the dates before and after that game against the Packers, and it was really well covered. Um, unfortunately, you can't find out much about the Stambaugh game because there was a fire, and so neither the Iron River News Library or the newspaper there have copies of that 1919 from the year 1919. So all you can, all I could find out is what was basically in the Press Gazette. But the Ishpeming Iron Ore was in a Weekly newspaper was an invaluable source. Hey, you mentioned George Calhoun, and he was one of the co-founders of the Packers. He was a sports writer at the Post-Gazette. Tell me about his relationship owning the Packers and the Packers' relationship with the Gazette, which ended up becoming the Packers' first unofficial beat. 
he was the city editor at the time. He was a Green Bay native, born in 1890. He was the great-grandson of Daniel Whitney, who was considered the founder of Green Bay. But his um, mother, who was a Whitney, married a civil engineer, and all they did was travel back in those days, putting in waterworks and things like that. That's why he was in Green Bay. So Calhoun ended up being uh, living in Buffalo for most of his childhood. Uh, and I think his outlet was sports. His dad wasn't around much. And he, uh, he started organizing teams there. You can find his name in the Buffalo newspapers by the time he was 12 years old, organizing teams, uh, issuing challenges to other kids' teams at the time. Uh, he was really an inveterate organizer, a perfect guy to, to co-found the Packers. He came back to Green Bay, worked for a while on the railroad in uh, Buffalo, and ended up coming back to Green Bay in 1916, I believe it was. Green Bay Review moved over to the Press Gazette um, a year or so after that and was city editor, actually, when, uh, when, he, helped, when he helped form the Packers. Well, Cliff, let's focus on the game itself. The Packers led 14 nothing at halftime. They won 33 to nothing. What can you tell us about the game other than the fact that it was rough, physical, and plagued with injuries? The game was actually scheduled. Here's the lead in the Press Gazette story on October 16th, uh, just a few days before the game. Due to an 11th-hour cancellation by the Rupling Leather Company team of Fond du Lac, there will be no football game at Hagemeister Park on Sunday afternoon. Manager Stack of the Downstate notified the Packers management at noon on Wednesday, this is the Wednesday before the Sunday game, that he would be unable to fulfill his contract for the game of October 19th. His alibi was sickness and injuries to his players. So they scrambled to schedule a game against Ishraming. Um, if you read the Ishpeming Iron Ore and the Press Gazette, there's no question it was a very physical game. Not surprising. Um, Curly Lambeau talked about how his players got beat up, um, and he so they started throwing the ball maybe as many as 30, 40 times in the game. But Curly, as Lee Remmel, the former Packers historian, told me once, Lee Lambo was a congenital liar, so there's not much he said that I believe without doing a lot of digging. And he also said that about the Stamball game. So I'm not sure which game the Packers threw all the passes in, Ishming or um, or Stamball, but uh, I, there's no question it was a very physical game. Uh, George Calhoun or Val Schneider, who was ever writing the story for the Press Gazette, Val Schneider was the sports columnist at the time, uh, thought it was a little too physical, and so the Ishpeming Iron Ore took, uh, took exception to that, and I think it was uh, it said if Green Bay wanted to play again, maybe they should schedule a game of Pinnacle, um, if they weren't any tougher than that, but they did win the game 33 to nothing. Cliff Crystal is the Packers team historian here to help us understand the 100th anniversary of the Packers' first road game at Ishpeming just a little bit better. Cliff, that was fascinating stuff. I really appreciate you taking the time. All the best going forward. Maybe talk again soon. Yeah, I wish I would have been at the game. I tried to find the Union Park, but I'm still not quite sure where it was. But anyway, good luck with uh, 
your anniversary. I appreciate it. Thank you, Cliff. Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen, weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN-UP and on the ESPN-UP app. If you missed any of our show today, get caught up on demand with our free mobile app. Get it from the Apple App Store, Google Play, or look up ESPNUP.com and check out the on-demand there. Tanner Hoops with you, joined by Ryan Stig of the Mining Journal, per usual on Fridays. I tell you what, we uh, filled up the show talking about mostly football, <laughs> mostly about the 100th anniversary of the Packers' first road game when they came up to Ishpeming, which, of course, the 100th anniversary is tomorrow. Some cool stuff. There's some really cool stuff we uncovered there. Yeah, we. Uh, I saw that uh, big sign when we were... Uh at the Packers Hall of Fame, I wrote about it in one of my columns. Uh, a lot of people don't know that they came up and mm-hmm. played a game like that. And it was <laughs> the last time Ishmael Nagani actually had a legit professional football team. Oh, and that was the thing. That was their last season. Then that franchise folded. It was a semi-pro franchise. They started a different one. But it's almost like the Packers broke that team because after that game, they didn't win again that season, and they only scored one more touchdown. All season long. It's like the Packers broke them in a way. That hurts. It does hurt. And uh, now they just have to rely on high school football. It's <laughs> a pretty good high school. To actually, three of them, because you've got Westwood, Nagati, yeah, yeah, Ishpeming. Yeah, so there you go. They got they can get by with that. So I tell you what, Ryan's here to give us the Friday funnies per usual to end the work week. What do you have this week, Ryan? All right, let's start with, uh, do you hear about the Bird Massacre at the NASCAR Hall of Fame? No. Okay, so over 310 birds... They're called chimney swifts. Have crashed into the windows of the NASCAR Hall of Fame and mm. fell into the ground dead. So it's just they're thinking that the lights, because the Hall of Fame keeps lights on at night, mm-hmm. and low cloud cover is disorienting the birds and attracting them to the walls, and they crash into it. And I was comparing that to remember when U.S. Bank Stadium opened? Oh yeah, and they had birds fly into the gra- glass paneling. Mm-hmm. This is this is bizarre. I didn't think this would be that big of an issue because it's like there's glass skyscrapers and you don't see 300 birds just lying around the front entrance. But I guess that's possible. So I don't know what it is. I guess birds are attracted to big sports buildings. They now. like NASCAR. And apparently Vikings football. So there you go. Um Let's see. Did you, you know Miles Garrett had a guy take a swing at oh, him, yeah. right? Okay, well, if you didn't know, um, Miles Garrett of the Browns uh, said that a fan, he was in his car talking on his phone, and he wanted to take a picture with him. So the fan, instead of taking the picture, punched him in the face. And Miles Garrett got on social media and said, okay, next time put your legs into it, and you might have actually made me <laughs> flinch. <laughs> the guy was... Smart enough to, well, for one thing, he hits a defensive end. Yeah. Like, that's one of the last things I would want to do. That's one of the last position groups I would want to target. For another thing, he got in his car and drove off, not realizing cars have license plates. Yeah. That's how they dragged him down. Yeah. So, that and I just... Who had the who has the mindset to go try to slug a defensive lineman in the face? (laughs) It just doesn't make any sense to me. Um, You hear about the dog that got carted down the hill? No. Okay. So there's a bull mastiff um, was rescued in a hike, looks like in Salt Lake County in Utah. So a guy who um, is walking, as they said, reports that someone said there's a guy walking with his huge dog, Mm. couldn't go any further on the trail, 
and they had to get the dog down. Now the mastiff weighs 190 pounds, mm. so pretty much a mount as an average sized person. <laughs> so they had to get a basically a gigantic what they call the litter, attach the dog to it, and carry the dog down the trail. They hiked about two miles in. Tied the dog to litter and hiked him out carrying him. Oh my gosh. So I'm looking at that as funny in the fact that maybe the dog just didn't want to go any further and he just <laughs> kind of was like, I don't want to go. Let's somebody come up and carry him. I feel for that dog. Yes. Um, hiking can wear, an, wear you out of him. I'm wondering. Who takes a two hundred uh, about two hundred pound dog on a hike with them? <laughs> I mean, I understand one to be next to your your canine friend, mm-hmm. but it's not like he has endurance. No, I mean, like dogs like going on walks, but this dog clearly doesn't like to walk or hike. Yeah, he just doesn't seem like the hiking buddy that was made for you. No, no, maybe like a retriever, a lab, not a guy mm-hmm. who sat on the tra- on, on the lift and was just like. I don't want to move kind of a thing. So hope you learned something there. Zach Brown of the Eagles mm-hmm. dissed Kirk Cousins mm-hmm. and got cut yep. pretty much the next day. And Cousins got player of the week. Yeah. So if you didn't know that, Eagles released linebacker Zach Brown, who uh, basically talked a lot of crap about Kirk Cousins, said um, the reason the Vikes lose, he's the reason the Vikes lose. He's the weakest part of their offense. Mm-hmm. Kirk Cousins, of course, had... A phenomenal day last week, and uh, Zach Brown was cut from the team. And when they asked, was that the reason why, a spokesperson said it didn't help his case. (laughs) Hey, Kirk Cousins may not be the greatest Viking quarterback of all time, but he's still a Viking. Yes. So you can't come at him. No. If you're from Minnesota and you like the Vikings. Although, you're wearing a Dolphins hat in studio today, Ryan. What's up with that? I got it last year when I was in Florida. Okay. Um, uh, I needed to find a souvenir when we were in Naples, and a lot of the stuff was really like hokey tourist stuff. You know, you can get anywhere, mm. and I was just like, I don't want to spend a bunch of cash on this. Then I found an orange dolphin's hat, and I was just <laughs> like, you know what? That's kind of cool. So I stuck with that, and that, that's my souvenir from my trip to Florida. You're about the only Dolphins fan north of Tallahassee. Here's the thing. I'm only a minor Dolphins fan, mm-hmm. but I figured wearing it today, if I don't wear it, nobody's going to wear it because <laughs> they're winless and they're sad. Dolphins fans aren't even wearing it. No. It's uh, it's sad, but I feel like, well, if Lions fans can show where Lions pride, mm-hmm. I feel like if I, I need to show at least some sense of pride. I respect that. I mean, there was Lions fans wearing Lions hats when they were 0-16, too. So there you go. <laughs> um, this is more of a, you know, okay, so the Chargers, as we all know, play in a soccer stadium. Mm-hmm. 27,000. Still can't sell it out. Mm-hmm. And when they do, it's like three-fourths of the other team. As we all, That's what happened with Pittsburgh. And... Uh, so the Chargers tried to rickroll. You know what rickrolling is, mm-hmm. right? Okay, if you, if you don't, they tried. They played the Chargers theme song, Renegade by Styx, of all bands. I, <laughs> I think of Come Sail Away from Styx. I don't think of Renegade. But, uh, and then they switched quickly after to Never Gonna Give You Up mm. by Rick Astley. Mm. Okay, that upset... Melvin Gordon and Forrest Lamp, who were like, why are you playing the other team's theme song in our stadium? It's like, and Forrest Lamp was even more sad. He was just like, we're used to fans not coming to our games, but you don't need to play the song of the other team. And I'm just like, 
you gotta be it's gotta be miserable if you're on the Chargers. How right did now. the Steelers get never gonna give you up as their theme song? No, uh, Renegades their theme song. Renegades, okay, okay, I got you. Yeah. And then they tried to rickroll them by playing Never Gonna Give You Up <laughs> and it was supposed to be funny, but all it did was just make it it made Steelers fans even more excited and it <laughs> made the Chargers upset. Um here's a so the Gaelic football champions fell off their parade truck. Mm. Now, normally this isn't something you want to joke around, but it's one of those, you know, it seems like in foreign countries, whenever there's a parade, something wrong goes happen. Mm-hmm. Well, they were little, uh, had a few too many beverages, <laughs> crammed way too many people on the top of the bus, the railing gave way, and they all basically <laughs> fell off the bus. <laughs> now... I don't know what it is, but overseas this tends to happen a lot. And uh, I'm just looking at it as, once again, crazy stuff happens in Europe. So this was the Gaelic Football League, so Ireland? Yeah. Okay, and football, do we mean real football or soccer? I think soccer. Okay. and uh, But it's just, everybody just fell off the parade truck. And I'm just like, why does this happen in Europe all the time? <laughs> Remember in Spain or whatever, those guys were hoisting the trophy and it broke? <laughs> And, like, got ran over by the parade truck. Ah, oh, classic day. Have you seen about the high school football player who had to tackle his teammate? Yes. Okay. Love it. Yeah. So, a guy was... There, it's a high school football game out in California. A guy picks off a pass and starts running the wrong way down the field. Mm-hmm. He has a clear pass to the end zone because nobody's going to tackle him because he's going to score a touchdown for the other team. So... <laughs> His teammate sprints as hard as fast as he possibly can and tackles his teammate at about the five yard line, <laughs> and it's <laughs> and the guy gets up and he's like all upset at his teammate. You know why'd you do that? And then everybody's like pointing at him where direction he went. <laughs> so he almost pulled a Jim Marshall. If you really want to go old timey, there's an old clip of former Viking Jim Marshall returning a fumble the other direction, mm-hmm. threw the ball up in the air when he got in there, started celebrating, and then the the Niners basically ran up and <laughs> hugged him for messing up. And that's going to be his legacy. Yep. And he was a pretty good player. He was, yeah. Isn't but he, that's how, how people are going to remember him. Yeah. That, that's the unfortunate thing is you can put up all the stats you want, but mm. people are going to remember you screwing up more than anything. Even if Mark Sanchez panned out as an NFL quarterback and was a Hall of Famer, they'd still remember him for butt fumble. Yeah. He could... He could be giving his Hall of Fame speech, and they'd be playing the Bud Fumble behind him. Um, I figure you would appreciate this. Uh, the Pope's tweet? Oh, yes. Yeah. Okay. So, um, the Saints, you know, I grew up Catholic. You know, he uh, said, sent out a tweet saying, we welcome our new Saints, you know, who are just inducted or, mm-hmm. you know, the whole ceremony there, and then said, he put hashtag Saints, which throws up the New Orleans Saints logo <laughs> on your tweet. And, yeah, he said hashtag Saints. Saints logo's in the tweet. So he accidentally gave a blessing to the New Orleans Saints, <laughs> who ended up winning. And they beat the greatest quarterback in football, yes. Gardner Minshew. Yeah. And uh, so there you go. So the Pope accidentally blessed the Saints, and they won a game. So I think they're hoping that he continues to do that. I don't know if he will. I'm sure he took it in stride because he's a nice guy, but it's it's just a funny thing. I love it. Um, I got two more. TD Garden, oh, where yeah. the Bruins play mm-hmm. and where the Celtics play, um, has decided to redefine, air quotes, fan experience. Mm. 
which means we're going to throw in a few more hundred seats and uh, make it ridiculously uncomfortable for our fans. Mm. Uh, the legs, if you're in a seat, you have about a four-inch gap now mm. between the seat. And fr- there's people, there's photos of people at Bruins games where their seats are actually touching the seat <laughs> in front of them. Um, this guy pointed out there's less leg room at TD Garden now than at Fenway. And oh Fenway boy. was built in 1912. Oh, boy. So it's just, it's laughable in the fact that this was all supposed to help fan experience and they actually made things more miserable and then someone at the arena spokesperson actually came out and said well maybe this is in everybody's heads they're imagining that their knees are well, that must be it yeah yeah it, it's it's in your head that you can't feel your legs in the third period of the game you know what's even more funny is those are the only two boston teams that didn't win a title this last year too maybe that's why that must be it the, the redefined fan experience <laughs> And then they said, well, maybe because the seats are padded now, that creates the smaller field. That must be it. Yeah. That makes sense. It, yeah. Not that you crammed weight of them two together. <laughs> it's just the Bruins, Jeremy Jacobs is known for being one of the stingiest, most hated home, hated owners in the mm-hmm. NHL, maybe in the country. And uh, he continues to not <laughs> understand how to deal with fans. I'm going to end it with the Kings, okay. the LA Kings. Do you see what they did with Taylor Swift? Yes. Okay. So... They have a banner that has Taylor Swift on it, and Taylor Swift has sold out 16 concerts at the Staples Center. Hasn't sung there since 2015, which is kind of like, what's the deal with that, Taylor? (laughs) So, but the Kings have been bad pretty Mm. much since 2015. So they're thinking, hey, we'll break our curse by covering up the Taylor Swift banner (laughs) with either our own banner and they ended up the night that they did it, they won the game <laughs> by covering up the Taylor Swift banner. So they're thinking they're going to keep doing this the entire season. The Clippers apparently already do it. Mm-hmm. And I guess the Lakers have started doing it too. Mm-hmm. So if it's sports season, you can't see the Taylor Swift banner basically from now on. <laughs> Maybe in the summer when there's nothing going on. Well, well, the Sparks play. So, sparks cover yeah, yeah, so the Sparks cover mm-hmm. too. So... Basically, you'd never get to see the Taylor Swift banner ever again. So I thought that was just an interesting way to think that'll end your problem, is to just cover up the I'm, banner. I'm kind of surprised the Lakers finally caved and covered it, because Kobe Bryant was the one who gave it to T-Swift. Really? Yeah, he was the one who presented her with that banner. <laughs> I'm kind of surprised the Lakers gave it It's kind of like, uh, well, we're bad too, so I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Let's all cover it up, you know? Kind of like a solidarity thing. It's just, I just thought it was a weird way. I mean, you combine all the ones I said, I mean, there's a lot of funny ones in there, and you can decide which one is the funniest. (laughs) I ended that one just because I thought it was a bizarre way to try to end a curse that you have. (laughs) I love those. Okay, there were some good fights this week. Put a star next to this one. Ryan, what do you have coming out this weekend in the mining journey? Well, I, I'm writing a column. Well, first, uh, on Monday, it will come up the UP Cross Country Finals. Mm. Um, uh, I'm covering that on Saturday. So, um, you know, I have a, um, could be some good local teams that are going to end up getting, you know, winning some titles. So that's great. And then uh, my column this week will be about... Part of it will be about the officiating and the NFL, and uh, also try. I'm also going to try to get people to, as bad as it is and as horrendous that was, you know, 
there, ultimately, there's other things that are a little more important, and I'm going to throw out some little examples there. Um, I'm going to mention Daniel Hudson. I'm going to mention Kelly Stafford and that kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. And I think people will kind of understand what I'm going for with that. So um, I, I, I try to be funny in there, too, in addition to somewhat serious. So there, I hope everybody can enjoy that. Check that out. The Mining Journal, Ryan Stieg with me, Tanner Hoops. That's it for us. Thanks for listening to the Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. I'm Ishpeming Marquette.